The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, well, perhaps we'll just let the others drift back, those who are not here. Uh, I just want, again, just to say if there's any questions before I move on, and I'll take it into a slightly different mode. But I want to um, just see what... This is working. Um, I was wondering when you were talking about metaphysics and Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. Is this better? <laughs> um, in your discussion about metaphysics and what Buddha was teaching, practical ideas and the unknowable, uh, yep. reincarnation is something very unknowable for me. I was okay. wondering, what is the context of in Buddhist time of reincarnation? Okay, well, <clears throat> it's, in, it's interesting that reincarnation, um, it's not particularly found in the Vedas. It's not particularly found in the oldest strata of the literature of ancient India. It starts to occur in that set of literature which I spoke about very, very briefly called the Upanishads. That's where it really starts to occur. And if you just literally ponder on that English word for a moment, reincarnation, it's literally the same thing taking up another body. That's what it is. And what is the same thing is basically the question that takes up another body in the early Upanishads. Well, the same thing that takes up another body is the Atman. Now, the Atman is the self. Um, it literally, um, in Sanskrit, Atman is a Sanskrit word, and it literally means, it literally means breath. The Atman was the breath. It's linked to the German word for breathing and breath, Atem. Yeah, so it's, it's actually that which is, which is the breath or the life or the self of the individual, which takes up residence in another body. Now, I always say there's a big difference between rebirth and reincarnation. So the context that the Buddha is speaking about is reincarnation. The belief in this very self-same thing, fixed, unchanging, moving from life to life to life, until something can be liberated. Until yeah. that can be liberated. Until it, in fact, can merge back with Brahman. Speak up if this doesn't make sense, because I, I want to make sure everybody follows. So that's the context in which the Buddha is speaking. Context of the absolute, well, it's becoming the fundamental metaphysical idea of Indian society. It's the one that really permeates Indian society to this day, is the idea, you know, sometimes if I'm in a, I don't know, sort of awful situation, then I can only wait for a future rebirth for it to be better. Or... You know, to be reincarnated in a better form in that life. Okay, that's the context in which the Buddha speaks about rebirth. Well, rebirth is obviously different. Very, very different. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> trying to decide to give you the traditional interpretation or the way I actually see it within the text. I'm going to give you the way I see it. Come on, I, I might as well go for that one. Um, 
What actually seems to me to be going on with the idea of rebirth in the text is much, much more metaphorical than literal. Again, I think he's playing with that background understanding. Because if you think about it, for a start off, if there is not this fixed self, even if there was rebirth, it's not going to be me that's reborn, is it? So it's no consolation. And being reborn... <laughs> so being reborn isn't a great big deal anyway. I mean, I've always contented myself with the thought, if something is reborn as a cockroach in a South American jungle, it's not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to be something else. Now, I could even play with that idea a little bit. But I think the Buddha is using this idea as the notion of actually rebirth is a moment-to-moment thing. Now, I'm going to talk about dependent origination a little bit later on, and I think you'll see the answer to this clearer within that. That this process of rebirth is a moment-to-moment rebirth. We literally carry our stuff over from moment-to-moment-to-moment. And if you carry your stuff over... It'll help you engage. This is actually where I was going to go anyway, so it's a helpful question. It'll actually create this. Sangsara. Sangsara is very interesting as a word because sangsara is usually, and you've probably all heard it, sangsara is the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. That's sangsara. But sangsara is actually much more than that. And that, I think, is a much later interpretation. Sangsara is literally, as the word etymologically is means in Pali, going round in circles. <laughs> That's what it means. So there's a qualitative phenomenological sense to our finding ourselves in the same place repeatedly. Yeah. Does that actually have any resonances with people? <laughs> You know, that we find ourselves in same or similar places on an almost regular basis. And that's because we're carrying the same stuff over. Yeah. That is a sense of how we're reborn, moment to moment to moment. The idea, of, obviously, is to get outside of that, liberating yourself from carrying stuff over. Now, what I often say about the concept of rebirth is, here in whichever way I think is helpful to you. Now, my, that way I've kind of given it to you here is a way I think it can, can help us to actually think about it as a much more positive thing directly within this life without being metaphysical. You know, know that we carry the same stuff over, know we repeatedly end up in similar places, and this will cycle will continue for the rest of your life unless you do something about it. You know? That's, if you, that, there's the fatalism, if you like, to a degree. If you don't do something about it, it continues over. continues again and again and again and again, um, doing that. So there, if you like, is the impetus to do something about it. The consolation, if you like, is, with, again, within this life, in that you could be free of that. Free of repetitive behaviour. You know, to my classes in Oxford, I often say this, particularly they're mostly therapists. I said, you know, the wheel of sangsara is basically a big version of OCD. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> Obsessive-compulsive 
disorder. <laughs> yeah. So we're obsessively and compulsively doing the same stuff again and again and again because it's driven by the same material again and again and again. Yeah. Now, if we eliminate the material that drives it, literally the motivating force behind it, which is being identified as, you know, for example, you know, the first of them, you know, loba, which is you know, infatuation with stuff. You know. That's a pretty well a big compulsion, a lot of us. We're infatuated by the stuff of the world. You know. You know, aversion towards the stuff that we're not infatuated with. <laughs> That's a huge driving force. You know, and then there is confusion. Now, I tend to use the word confusion rather than delusion or ignorance. Yeah. Because you know, both of those other terms in, in Western languages, delusion and ignorance, have a kind of pejorative sense to them. It's your fault that you're confused and deluded. Actually, it's not really. You know, it's because our societies are confused and our parents were confused and, you know, and we end up being confused. That's what the situation that we're in, and that's kind of the backdrop to all of our behaviour that gives rise to the other two things. Now, unless you can deal with that, then repetitive behaviour is going to go on. That's what's going to continue. However, if you hear it in the more traditional sense of something going on from life to life to life, well, all I can say is, if that's helpful, well, okay, it's helpful. Use it. But it's metaphysical, if you're hearing it in that sense. I can see repetitive behaviour in my life. And I'm sure you can all see it in your lives, if you look at it. If you want another word version of, of, of empirical rebirth here, is that your stuff goes on even after you're dead. Doesn't it? You know, all of those people you've been engaged with in your life, and you know, had close relationships, distant relationships, aversive relationships, and everything else. All that goes on. If you know, if I bring up a child and traumatize that child, that goes on. There's a bit of me, in a sense, going on through that child, you know, who becomes an adult, and then it goes on through their children. That's a very psychological way that our stuff goes on. Yeah. Another way, and you can think about this more ecologically, is our, literally our garbage goes on. <laughs> All the rubbish we leave behind us, both literally and metaphorically. <laughs> you know, it just goes on. So I think what the, part, you know, what the Buddha's way is about, really, a lot of it, is actually beginning to eliminate the amount of debris that we leave behind us as we go through our lives. Yeah. That, I would say, is literal rather than metaphysical. And I think we can see that. We can see the way others have influenced others and that way they've been psychologically harmed or helped by others. We can see our, you know, literally our rubbish going on and so on and so forth. And it can be a very practical way of seeing of this teaching. Um, but, as you know, all of the traditional, the major traditions within Buddhism have... Rebirth as a major concept. 
with, isn't it? I mean, I've heard things like saying, well, you can't possibly be a Buddhist if you don't believe, this is the word, belief, if you don't believe in rebirth. Yeah? But on the other hand, these traditions, including, I'm not going to pinpoint any particular tradition because I think they're all doing it, all of these traditions will say, examine everything. Analyze it. Test it. Yeah. Don't take it on authority. I see particularly in Western Buddhism, so many times the Kalama Sutta is, is cited as being really good, and then people will say, well, go and believe in rebirth. Now, the Kalama Sutta, by the way, for those who don't know, is the one where the Buddha is saying, basically, don't believe a word I say, because I say it, or somebody else says it, or it's tradition, or authority says it, yeah. or it's hearsay, or whatever ways that we get knowledge transmitted to us. No, he's saying examine it in your experience. But on the other hand, the traditions are saying something else. That's, I think, the difference between what I call this strata of the Nikayas and religion. Yeah. Now, what I can only admit this for myself to you, which is what I'm interested in is actually not religion, but I'm interested in what is there as a teaching which can help us directly. Yeah. Sorry, it's a long answer to a short question again. <laughs> yes, yeah, just one more, and then we'll I'll continue to talk a little bit more further. Well, if I understood you correctly, uh, <clears throat> earlier you said that uh, that the Buddha was um, a social critic mm -hmm. of the societal structures of the time. And I'm sort of uh, reminded of the way I've come to view uh, Jesus as also being mm, yeah. uh, a social critic for which he was crucified. So I'm, I'm just curious, uh, did the Buddha, as far as we can, can tell, uh, come in conflict with the power structures of the time? Oh, yes. Very much so. Very, very much so. Um, He's coming, he comes in conflict, not in, in quite the devastating way, of course, that Jesus does in the Gospels. He doesn't come into conflict in quite that way, but he's often put in extremely compromising political situations and positions, where he's, for example, I mean, one of the classic examples is something called the Samanyapala Sutta. Again, it's in the Diginakaya Long Discourses, where he's having a chat with a king called Ajatasattu. You know, some of you might know this text. And the Jatasattu is asking him, basically, what, does, what are the fruits of living this reclusive life, the homeless life? Um, now, Ajatasattu, here's the background to it. Ajatasattu has just murdered his father. <laughs> and if you go through the discourse, what you see the Buddha is, is gradually, very slowly beginning to bring the king around to an awareness of the deed that he's engaged in. Yeah. That's the context with which it goes. Now, you often find him coming in conflict with the Brahmins. Yeah. Um, he, he often jokes with them. He get, puts himself in, a very, in positions which are going to make him extremely unpopular in society because he's questioning everything within it. He's actually really confronting that society. Now, Indian society, perhaps... I mean, it wasn't under the occupation, obviously, but... Um, 
Palestine was under that particular period with the Roman occupation with Jesus, and so you probably haven't got the same, kind of same conflictual elements going on within it, but you're certainly finding a figure who is very unpopular, and there's a number of attempts made on the Buddha's life throughout the text. You know, um, for varying reasons, they're kind of slightly mythologized, but you see them going on. He's put himself in extremely unpopular positions at times. He speaks his mind most of the time, apart from the Samanyapala Sutta, where he actually plays politics very carefully to try and bring Ajatasattu round to an understanding of what he's being engaged in. But he's definitely coming in, in conflict with the, um, the powers that be of the time. When he comes into conflict with Brahmins, um, you often find them, for example, and I think these are probably very authentic texts because there's no reason for them to be there in many senses, in the canon, is he, they often come to him and ask him a question. The Buddha will give his response and his reply, and on a number of occasions, they go away shaking their head, saying, this is rubbish, I don't understand what he's saying. Yeah. Really not convinced by what he's saying. There's no reason for those to be there. there. But it shows him coming into conflict with, with what's going on. But other times, as you can imagine, he's making himself extremely unpopular. I mean, there's one particular instance, I'll give you one instance, um, where some Brahmins are throwing some water, and the Buddha says to them, he's throwing water up in the air towards the sun, and the Buddha says to them, what are you doing? And he says, we're watering, sending water to the ancestors. So the Buddha picks up water and starts throwing it in the opposite direction. And they say to him, what are you doing? He says, I'm watering the fields. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how popular that made him in Brahmin circles. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I mean, the answer is yes, he does come in conflict. Yeah, but we don't see the devastating results in quite the same way. Although, um, as, if you haven't read it, I would actually read Stephen Batchelor's last book where he kind of puts together an alternative biography of the Buddha, you know, The Confession of the Buddhist Atheist. Um, because within that, I mean, I think Stephen even speculates the Buddha might eventually have been poisoned, yeah. um, which is po very, very possible. Very, very possible. And this is the reason why he's saying to the others, you know, I'll eat this, but don't let any of the others eat it at all. You know, this particular food that's being prepared for him. So he's obviously aware it's been adulterated in some way. That's right, Chunda, who's the blacksmith here. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, Madawa Sukura, which is probably pig's meat, which would again would have been very antithetical to the Brahmins. Yeah. Eating flesh. Okay, so we pause from some questions for a little bit and, and, and perhaps move this on just a tiny bit. So let me, let me kind of just hopefully sum up where we've got to a little bit. Buddha critiquing his society, exactly coming from your question, really, really engaged in critiquing his society, looking at what's going on within it, using the tropes of the language of his society as well. I, I always have a pick, when I think about this and I have an image of what was going on in Indian society with the Buddha walking around, um, I can imagine a lot of people scratching their heads, going, he appears to be seeing, using the same language, but he's somehow using it differently. You know? And some people will engage with that and others won't, you know, in the different ways in which the language is being used. Um, 
he's often, if not always, metaphorizing aspects of Indian, and I do say this deliberately almost, Indian religious traditions. Yeah. He's engaged in an intense, I haven't mentioned this before, but he's engaged in an intense relationship with the two polarities of Indian society, which are, he's finding a middle way between the household life of the Brahmins. Now, everything in Brahmin society was centered around house and hearth. You know, all your religious rituals, most of them took place in the household. It was your duty, I didn't mention this, it was your duty to get married you know, and produce children if you're a male. You know, life was mapped out, I told you it was a thumbnail sketch, life was mapped out literally from cradle to grave as to what you should be doing at the stages of your life. Um, there's a term that they use even up to in contemporary Hinduism, which is called Avana Ashrama Dharma. The duties you have at the stages of your life to your social strata. Yeah. And those are completely mapped out for you. No wonder you have dropouts, you know, the dissidents, as I put it, who moved outside of their society. So that's one side of the equation, which is the household life, everything being, situ everything being situated in it, um, literally with these duties. The other side of it was Jainism, or Jainism. Jainism actually presented a very different picture, which is a picture of complete asceticism. Asceticism. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's, it's my accent. <laughs> I have to apologize for it. <laughs> I mean, there was literally within, for example, um, the Jain orders, and there were a number of them, a group which was known as Digambara, which was sky-clad. You know, these are the, what, the naked philosophers that Alexander the Great came across. You know, these were the people who were really, truly ascetic, ascetic within you know, their society. They literally could not stay more than one night in any one place. They had to keep moving on. And some of you know even contemporary forms of Jainism have this sort of thing with wearing masks and always looking at your feet and never stepping on an insect. All this sort of you know, really strong aspect of ahimsa, you know, ahimsa non-violence, yeah, which is there. Now, on the one hand, the household life is stultifying to any spiritual awakened experience or can be the Buddha certainly puts it in the category of being quite difficult within that but certainly within Brahman within the stranglehold, stranglehold of Brahmanism it becomes virtually impossible because it's all governed by ritual and on the other hand you have these extreme ascetic practices or ascetic practices of the um, of the giants and so the Buddha is even creating an order that runs as a sort of social corrective between the two. You know, between the two. You know, so people become renouncers. They come, you know, that Shramanera tradition. They become samanas. They become part of that renouncing order. But the Buddha cleverly says to them, you want to renounce society, I will make you completely dependent on society. Yeah. Interesting move. It's very clever. 
So he's putting them completely back in touch and dependent on that society. So you can't escape society, even if you are entering into, into the bhikkhu sangha or the bhikkhuni sangha at that time as well. So that's part of the social critique as well, is offering even an order which um, is, a, you know, it, by its very nature, critiquing the two extremes of society in its way. Then, another major aspect, and perhaps this is getting into slightly new material, he puts at the forefront of his movement ethics. Now, I find this is something that actually in Western Dharma circles does not get talked about enough. The whole ethical side of this. And even that some, a figure within the history of Buddhism that I can be quite critical of, Buddhaghosa, says that even your meditation practices, if they're not rooted in ethics, are groundless. Yeah. So look at your behavior. Look at your thinking behind your behavior. Look at intention behind that. This is all coming out from an early study of the text. He's putting ethics at the forefront of this. Now, within the Bhikkhu Bhikkhuni Sangha, this is your 227 rules. Now, at worst, as a lay person, you get 10. At minimum, you get five. <laughs> you know? Um, but they form the actual bedrock of practice. You know, these are not slightly sort of adjuncts to practice. And all too often, um, I don't know if this is true with yourselves, I'm sure it probably isn't, but all too often I see, certainly within the UK, I see people defining their form of Buddhism by what meditation practice they do. Yeah. I'm a Zogchen practitioner, I practice Mahamudra, I'm a Zen practitioner. These are all styles of meditation. They have nothing to do, actually, with the Dharma, in a sense. The Dharma is rooted in ethics. Yeah. That is where it's rooted. It's rooted in that practice of everydayness, you know, how you're acting every day. And even the uh, precepts, I often find very mistranslated or curtailed, shortened. The, the sting, the radicality of what the Buddha is even proposing in the precepts, taken out of them. You know, so the first precept says, don't kill. Okay, we're back into another Ten Commandments, except we've got five of them now. Yeah. But actually, the, and I'm not going to go through these with you because I think you're all familiar with them, but go back and look at the original wording of these things. They all start with, A, it's a rule of training. So this is a way of training yourself. Just as you sit down on the meditation cushion and train yourself in learning to not meditate, actually, but cultivate Another mistranslation, word bhavana does not mean meditation, it means cultivation. Yeah. We're cultivating particular dimensions of experience. You know, insight. We're cultivating calmness. We're culting, cultivating metta. We're cultivating karuna, mudita, upeka, you know, and so on and so forth. We're cultivating these. You know. So, a rule of training a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Far more interesting than don't kill. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I can actually engage with that. The other one just tells me, don't do it. Whereas to refrain from harming living things means to actually engage in an inquiry into all my relationships of harm. 
including harm to yourself. You're, You're implied. You're not excluded in this. You're a living being. So how do you harm in your life? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it. And I'll mention, I'll only mention one more precept, but go through them all. But the third precept is an interesting one because it's usually just translated, um, don't, don't, don't engage in sexual misconduct. It actually, again, is mistranslated. It's, it's actually the word, one of the words within the whole phrase is kamesu, which is sensual indulgence. Yeah. Don't, it's saying, I engage in a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. So this is how you abuse your senses. You know, we have multifarious ways, from far more than ancient India, engaging in sensual misconduct, <laughs> misuse and overuse of the senses. Yeah. So take a close look at those. You know, that's, again, going back to the early text rather than this often to, can be, and I'm not pointing an accusatory finger at anybody, but can often be this bland overlay of the way that we interpret it in contemporary practice, which is we come up with a nice list, because that's what Westerners are used to, a nice list of things that says don't do this. Now, there's, a, there's less of an engagement with a don't do than with a refraining from. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm not going to labour this point, but look at the precepts again. Reflect on the precepts on a regular basis in your daily life because they are the bedrock upon which the rest of the inquiry, which is the way I see this path that the Buddha is, is giving us in the early texts, it's that upon which it rests, you know, if you look at, for example, the Sigalaka Sutta, which is, again, it's a Diganakaya Sutta, it's um, number 31, I think it is, in the Diganakaya, you'll find there, this is the, um, the Sutta that's directed towards Sigala, who's a layperson. And actually, as a layperson, there was all this distinction in um, Indian society, in the way it was portrayed in Indian society, that the layperson had to look even more closely at their ethics than, say, the monastic, because the monastic has these 227 rules that they have to engage, you know, engage in, and they have the constant scrutiny of the other monks around them who often um, you know, cr- will critique them. They have to go through the upasata, which is actually the recitation of their you know, faults at, during the you know, full moon and new moon periods. So there's a lot of kind of constraint on the monastics. But lay people, we have to engage even more closely, I think, with, with, the, with the precepts. Yeah. So that's kind of a little bit, I think, that comes out of the way this is taught. So that's the bedrock it relates, rests on. Okay, I'm going to go take us up to lunch on mistranslations <laughs> out of this. Uh, because they're misleading, uh, more often or not. <clears throat> I've given you quite a few. Some of them I remind you of again, but... In many ways, the depiction we have of Buddhism places it firmly back with the translations we often have of a religious tradition. We've just heard me speak about them because I've just used a couple of words, monks and nuns. Yeah? Bhikkhu, bhikkhuni. 
you know, Vihara, monastery. These words don't actually mean this at all. You know? um, bhikkhu means basically beggar or sharer. Yeah. Now, literally it means, you know, the most basic level, it can mean beggar, one who begs, but one who begs and also then shares what they have gained as food. So you go around on your pindapat with your bowl and everything and people give you and then you go back and then you share the food between you from this. So, and there's another sense of sharer. And I'm sure you can come up with what that is. What do monks and nuns share? The Dhamma. This is what they share. So in receipt, in, re, in, in, in kind of um, recompense for the food that they're given, which they then share out among each other, they then share their understanding of the Dhamma. Yeah. That was the contract within society. Um, um, Vihara is not a monastery. You know, I don't know about you, but when I first came, when I was first involved in Buddhism 40 years ago, and when I first heard the word monastery, I thought of kind of Catholic monasteries. <laughs> you know, closed orders and all this sort of stuff, and silence, and then I came to this horrific thing of living in a Tibetan monastery. <laughs> <laughs> Which was far from that, had a main road running through it, <laughs> uh, about 600 monks in it who never stopped talking. <laughs> you know? And it was far from a quiet haven you know, of, of a place. It's literally a dwelling place. That is all it is. You know, so again, often notice the way that we're led into picturing things by the language that we use. You know, the, the language of the Dhamma, these are just peripheral words almost, you know, bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, vihara, but the language of the Dhamma is very precise, the way it's used. Um, and often these translations mislead us in what they're doing. So dukkha being the classic one, I won't go into that again. Um, avidya, ignorance, well, it's so pejorative. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know what's how it's here in the States, but if I said that to somebody, you're ignorant, I'd probably get a punch on the nose <laughs> um, in, in a UK situation. Whereas it doesn't actually mean that. It means more this sense of, of not, well, it's not just not knowing, it's not wanting to know. Yeah. It has that as its major connotation, not wanting to know. You know, it's not vidya, not knowing, not wanting to know within it. Confusion, it also has that connotation of confusion within it. Sangsara, you've heard me talk about that. Well, birth, death, rebirth. Well, going round in circles. Hear it literally. Going round in circles. This is a verb, again, by the way, sangsara, <clears throat> in its form. Nibbana. Well, this is not Buddhist heaven. Yeah. Nibbana is process. Nibbana is verb. Yeah. It literally, it's in it. If you want a technical word for it, version of it, it's what's classed as an intransitive verb in Pali. It means it doesn't move from a subject to an object. It's an intransitive. So it actually literally means gone out. That's what it means. And it refers to the, the gone outness of greed, infatuation, aversion, and confusion. Those have literally gone out. They cease to be the 
you know, the flaming forces behind your behavior. Sankara, which is also related to sangsara. You know, this is another word which, you know, uh, volitional formations, standard translation of it, uh, volitional formations, doesn't really get into the main dimension of it, which is really its habit. It's that which is a habit. You know, it could be bad habits, could be good habits, but they're still habits. You know, in other words, they're unthinking, almost neural pathways upon which the mind runs and constantly reproduces themselves, <coughs> reproduce themselves in various activities and engagements that we engage in, that we have. Vinyana, which is usually translated simply as consciousness, which then neglects the more dynamic aspect of it, which is thinking. You know, this is consciousness and thinking. You know, it's cognizance, in other words. Vinyana. Yeah, Vinyana. So these are just some of the words. It's just a small extract of the kind of lexicon of words that we use continuously, um, which actually I think the English word often blocks us from really, really engaging with what the Buddha is saying. Well, we've had the classic one, Buddha, awakened. Awakening, as opposed to enlightenment here. So we can get led into a religiosity simply by the language that we use, which isn't present in the early texts. Now, <clears throat> since I've got this title, which is, you know, Buddhism before Theravada, well, Theravada is a religious position. You know, let's make that clear. Now, that's not to say it's a bad religious position. That's not to say it's a good religious position. It's a religious position. It's a position and a reading of the early texts in a very particular way. It's a very selective reading of the early texts. Primarily by this figure called Buddhaghosa in the 5th century, who then writes that massive doctrinal um, foundation for Theravada, the Visuddhimagga. Um, you know, so much so that any critique, in Sri- anybody's a critic of Buddhaghosa in Sri Lanka, their books are banned. Yeah. Because it's not Theravadan orthodoxy. It's not Theravadan position. Yeah. And you know, Sri Lankan Theravada Buddhism considers itself to be what they refer to themselves as pristine Theravada. Completely uncontaminated by anything else. Yeah, you'll walk through the middle of Sri Lanka and you'll find these Mahayana statues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And things like this. But what I'm trying to get you to hear is that it is an orthodoxy. You know, there are certain things that you subscribe to as a Theravadan, you know, which are not necessarily there within those early strata of texts. So when we start to look at these early texts in this much more dynamic way, I would actually equate it to something that um, Heidegger says he does to the history of Western philosophy, which is you engage in a destructive retrieve. You have to destroy the tradition in order to retrieve what the tradition has cut out. Now, that sounds very dramatic. It's not as dramatic and as as aggressive as that. But it is trying to retrieve those gold nuggets which are there in those early texts, which get so 
lost within this orthodoxy which we can so easily sign up to and lose out, in sense, our investigative capacities here. And this is what you, in a sense, I say the practical side of what I'm talking about, is keep alive your investigative capacity, your capacity to engage with these texts. They will reward you if you engage in, the, in them this way. So, there's a little bit about the background of Indian thought, and there's a little bit about the language that we use at present, and how that language and the orthodoxies can mislead us. I think it's probably time, in a way, to move on into looking at some of the teachings that the Buddha gives, and I think that can be absolutely authenticated through the early texts, um, and see where perhaps, and you, I'm not going to lay ex, explicit everything here, but where in your minds you might see that they don't actually touch with what the tradition says, uh, the traditions that you're used to. And I think you know, we'll probably start with things like the Noble Truths after lunch and then have a look at also aspects of Paticca Samuppada, you know, dependent origination. Because these, that actually is the explication of the noble truths, you know, or the ennobling truths, as I'd like to get through to you. Yeah. So perhaps we adjourn for lunch, 12 o'clock? Okay. That sounds okay? It will take, what, you think maybe an hour and 15 minutes? Does that sound good? Is that too long? Too short? <laughs> Perfect.